Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Minnesota is the latest state neighboring Wisconsin to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. It joins Illinois and Michigan in allowing the full use of the drug, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Meanwhile, medical use of marijuana is legal in Iowa. Wisconsin's laws, however, have yet to change. Both medicinal and recreational marijuana are illegal in the state. Lawmakers have repeatedly proposed legalizing the drug, but have been met with resistance from the Republican-led legislature. A study from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum earlier this year found that at the time, half of all Wisconsinites of legal age lived within a 75-minute drive to a legal dispensary in a neighboring state. The top administrator of the state's court system was fired today by the Wisconsin Supreme Court's new liberal majority. Randy Koshnick has been the director of the state court system for six years. The position oversees courts across the state and creates their annual budget. A letter terminating Koshnick's appointment sent from Justice Ann Walsh Bradley on behalf of the court gives today as his end date. The move comes one day after Janet Protasiewicz was sworn into the court, flipping the body from a to a 4-3 liberal majority. Koshnick castigated that majority in the Capital Times today, saying the move runs roughshod over the rule of law. The Freedom From Religion Foundation is calling on the Dane County Board to end a contract with SSM Health after the Catholic Health System recently decided to halt gender-affirming care after pressure from the Catholic Church. The Dane County Board has already asked its lawyers to investigate whether the move would constitute a contract violation under the board's recently passed resolution declaring Dane County a sanctuary for trans and non-binary people. The Freedom From Religion Foundation's advocacy arm says that doesn't go far enough and that Dane County employees deserve the gamut of health care without religious interference. August is moving time in this city and Hippie Christmas is almost here. But Madison officials have a few tips on how to get rid of the large items that you don't want to lug over to your new abode. First, keep such large items, couches and mattresses and the like, away from objects like fire hydrants and street signs. Make sure to look up and don't place them under low-hanging wires or tree branches. Keep metal items separate from wood and keep large piles tidy and don't put trash on top of them. Most large items don't require a fee for collection. That includes couches, chairs, desks, mattresses, tables, and rugs. But some, like microwaves and air conditioners, require you to pay a fee through the city's website. And some rules are different during August move-out days in the downtown area. Handy guides are listed on the city's website. That's at cityofmadison.com forward slash streets. Tonight is the last night of Concerts on the Square, which is celebrating its 40th season this summer. The program, which kicks off on the Capitol Square at 7 p.m., will feature works from Handel to John Williams. And it'll close with film scores from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, and Little Women. And those are the headlines this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories.
The county's youth justice program, formerly known as the Neighborhood Intervention Program, has been helping at-risk youth connect with community programs since 1987. And until 2020, the program was run out of multiple facilities scattered across the city. That changed today. <clears throat> Pardon me. That changed today as county officials held a grand opening for their new facility housing the entire program under one roof. Our producer, Nate Weggehout, has more. Officials with the County Human Services Department celebrated the grand reopening of the Dane County Youth Justice and Prevention Facility earlier today. The Youth Justice Program has been operating in Dane County for over 35 years and works to redirect at-risk youth and create opportunities to keep them out of trouble. They serve around 1,000 youth each year through programs like the Gang Response Intervention Team, the Right Track Work Team, and other youth services. Formerly known as the Neighborhood Intervention Program, the program used to be housed in multiple buildings across the city. Now, the full Youth Justice Program sits under one roof, right next door to the county's job center on Sherman Avenue. Andre Johnson is the Youth Justice Manager with the program. He says that the new facility will help their work of putting kids on the path to success. So it offers an opportunity first and foremost for our staff to be together for a better coordination and collaboration, uh, but also to provide a space for the youth to work on building competencies and helping assist them with moving forward and, and doing better. Groups and other activities are held here. We've got a wood shop behind you that we do, but also just being a welcoming space for them and their families to come and do the work that, that they need to do. The new facility is filled with art created by youth through the Madison Public Library's Bubbler program, alongside art from local artist Autofacts. Astra Iukumere, the interim co-director of the county's Human Services Department, says that the three years it took to remodel the facility was well worth the wait. It's been a long, long time, and so just the colors and the pictures and just it, this is really a picture uh, a, a symbol of the community and a labor of love another important part of the new facility is its new name the youth justice and prevention center Iukumere says that while the neighborhood intervention program was used for years when abbreviated it can create a racial slur she says that the new name not only better reflects the program but also shows how the program is willing to change with the times this naming, this name came from the team, came from the staff and uh, from the team, the YJ team. So just really all of it really just symbolic of our values as human services to elevate and celebrate the community that we serve. The new facility began holding staff and programs earlier this year, but with today's grand opening, the facility is now open to the public by appointment. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout. Inside a packed Capitol Rotunda yesterday afternoon, Justice-elect Janet Protasewicz was officially sworn into office on the state Supreme Court. Sworn in by fellow Justice Ann Walsh-Bradley, Protasewicz now cements a liberal majority on the court for the first time in over a decade. Tonight, we air the entirety of her speech, made in the state Capitol yesterday, moments after taking her oath of office. I can't tell you how much it means to see so many friends, family, colleagues, and community leaders here today to recognize this occasion. I'd like to thank Justice Ann Walsh Bradley 
for leading our swearing-in. Your friendship and the decades, decades of mentorship and leadership you have given to the people of the state of Wisconsin, we all owe you a debt of gratitude. Thank you. I'd also like to thank Justice Dallet, Justice Hagedorn, and Justice Karofsky for joining us today. I look forward to serving alongside all of you, along with Chief Justice Ziegler and Justice Bradley, to uphold the Constitution of our state and deliver on the promise of justice for every Wisconsinite. I wouldn't be here today without so many of you in this room who I've had the opportunity to work with and learn from throughout my career. It was a long campaign, so many of you probably know that I am a former prosecutor. As a former prosecutor and judge, I've witnessed firsthand the importance of upholding our laws, holding people accountable, and applying justice fairly and equally. I've learned so much from my colleagues in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office and my colleagues and all my staff members in the Milwaukee County Circuit Court. It has been a privilege, and I thank you, to work alongside all of you. You have all made me who I am today, and I thank you for being here. want to recognize the many current and former members of the <clears throat> circuit court bench, the appellate court bench, and the, mu the municipal court bench, who work every day, every single day, to make sure the rights of every Wisconsinite are upheld. And I need to thank my entire family. You know, Emma did that Pledge of Allegiance. I would have asked my niece Olivia to play a role but she was in New Zealand, and I never dreamed she would come here for this event. So, Olivia, thank you for being here today with all of us. <laughs> My brother Steve, his wife Jen, everybody who has followed this campaign from the beginning to the end. My very, very dear friends, and I would be remiss, quite frankly if I didn't give a special shout out to my very, very dear friend Val, who sits in the front row. We met on the first day of law school at Marquette many years ago, and I think on that first day of law school we weren't so sure we made the right decision. <laughs> in the end, it obviously turned out well, but she deserves a very special shout out. During this entire campaign, I told people, you know what, I didn't grocery shop for a year, I didn't walk the dog for a year, <laughs> I didn't do laundry for almost a year. And she was dutiful in dropping off care packages to me almost every week. And I thank you. And I know it wasn't easy for you to get here today. So thank you. I also want to thank my husband, Greg, who is truly the best support system. He has always believed in me. And he barely hesitated for more than a day or two when I told him that I thought I was going to get involved in a statewide race. Greg's the best. Thank you, Greg. I also would like to thank my campaign team and the thousands of volunteers 
And I know there were thousands of volunteers who gave their time and their energy. I know you canvassed. I know you phone banked. I know you sent postcards. I know you contacted all of your networks. I am well aware of what you've all done, and I know that there were many, many of you doing that. And I hope you don't feel as though that was a thankless job. I thank all of you for that. I'm well aware of it. All of your generosity and determination made this possible today, and I will be forever grateful for what we were able to accomplish together. To everyone who has been part of today's beautiful program, thank you for your kind words, your friendship, and for making this event a success. I thank Justice Dallet for stepping up and filling in for my dear friend, Lavelle Johnson, who had a family emergency this morning. You can always count on Justice Dallet in a pinch, so thank you very much. And how about Gabriela Banuelos and that beautiful rendition of our national anthem? Stunning. Thank you very much. But my biggest thank you goes to the people of the state of Wisconsin for placing your trust in me and granting me this responsibility. I look forward to serving you as a member of this court and doing my best to represent a state that I've called home and loved my entire life. I've always believed in public service. Throughout my entire career, I've had only one client, and that is the people of our beautiful state of Wisconsin. It is truly, truly the honor of a lifetime to have this unbelievable opportunity to continue to serve all of you. I was born and raised on the south side of Milwaukee to hardworking parents. I went to UW-Milwaukee and then Marquette Law School. Worked my way through college doing all sorts of things. I was a waitress. I wrote music reviews for the Milwaukee Journal. I ran the office for the League of Women Voters. Did all sorts of things. <clears throat> and trust me, during all of those long days and nights, I really truly never imagined that this is where I would end up. But all of those long hours led to an incredible opportunity to see our judicial system up close. And it allowed me to see what I believe is universal to Wisconsinites all across our beautiful state. And that is everyone should get a fair shot to demand justice and not feel like the thumb is on the scale against them. Traveling. <laughs> <clears throat> Traveling the state over the past year only made this more apparent. From Racine to Bayfield and every place in between, and I mean every place in between, I was everywhere. I was in some places four or five or six or seven times, such as La Crosse and Eau Claire. <laughs> I was everywhere. But I heard from the people of this state about our shared beliefs. We all want a Wisconsin where our freedoms are protected. We want a Wisconsin with a fair and impartial Supreme Court. We all want to live in communities that are safe. And we all want a Wisconsin where everyone is afforded equal justice under the law. That's why I don't take this responsibility lightly. Just as I have throughout my entire legal and judicial career, I am committed to protecting our freedoms 
and I'm committed to fairness and impartiality in our justice system. It's not only what the people of Wisconsin expect, it's what they deserve and what the oath I have taken demands. The Wisconsin Supreme Court's execution of our duties without favor to special interests, political pressure, or our own personal beliefs is vital to giving the people of our state trust and confidence in our judicial system. That's because the court has a unique and critical responsibility to interpret and apply the law when there are disputes. Our decisions, every one of our decisions, will have real-life, far-reaching consequences for the many people in this state. The issues that will come before this court are complex. Many of them deal with our most basic rights that are outlined in our Constitution. Decisions that this court will be making will impact some of the most important aspects of our daily lives. We need to ensure that the public has confidence in our decisions. We can do that, as Justice Ann Walsh Bradley just said, by improving transparency and accountability in the courts. Wisconsinites deserve to know that we are making decisions based on the law and the facts before us. To my colleagues who are here today, I'm under no illusion that we will always agree, but I respect each of you immensely, and you have my promise to work with you to fulfill our duties to the people of Wisconsin. The responsibility before us and the importance of our job is weighty, but I'm ready to get to work, and I'm ready to deliver justice and common sense as a member of this court. As I think of the challenges and responsibilities ahead, I'm reminded of our state motto, forward. It's not only a motto, but a value that is ingrained in this state that calls on all of us to work together to make our state stronger and to ensure justice and fairness for all. I know we can move forward, and I hope to make Wisconsin proud as a member of this court. <clears throat> so again, I want to thank all of you for being here today. It means so much to me to have this opportunity to thank you for your work and to recognize our shared belief in the rule of law and to move forward together. Thank you all so very much. Wisconsin's new four to three liberal majority on the Supreme Court is just a day old. And with that liberal majority, Democrats are poised to implement changes they've been calling for for years. At the top of the list, a fight for fair maps. Here's Abigail Levins. Today, the nonprofit liberal law firm Law Forward filed a lawsuit challenging Wisconsin's voting maps directly with the state Supreme Court. The lawsuit asked the court to overturn the state's voting maps, which have long been condemned by Democrats as the most skewed in the nation. Mark Gaber is the senior director of redistricting at Campaign Legal Center, a nonprofit voting watchdog group. He says Wisconsin's current maps are the most gerrymandered in the nation. The, the 2011 Republican legislature ensured that Wisconsin voters would never be able to change their minds, that they got one shot in 2010 to elect Republicans, 
And, and it turns out that was going to be the only election that ever happened for the legislature uh, in, in perpetuity. A spring 2022 study from the UW Law School found that Wisconsin's current legislative maps, largely a continuation of maps adopted a decade earlier, are three to five times worse on all standards of measuring partisan fairness. Ruth Greenwood, the director of election law clinic at Harvard Law School, says Wisconsin's extreme gerrymandering means that voters' voices are lost. Greenwood says it removes the choice in elections. It didn't matter how much door knocking he joined them to do. It didn't matter how many fundraisers he held. The outcomes were preordained. The gerrymandering started with biased maps drawn in 2011 and continued in 2021 when Republicans again drew the maps heavily in their favor. The Supreme Court then ruled in spring of 2022 in favor of the Republican maps, favoring an approach with the least changes. Democrats have criticized the maps in recent campaigns and pointed towards fixing them as a top priority. Fair maps were a key campaign issue for Protosawitz this spring. The lawsuit filed today asked the state's top court to prohibit current maps from being used in future elections. It asked the court to establish new maps before the 2024 election, so the entire legislature will be elected under new boundaries. And it asked the court to order special elections under the new maps for seats that aren't already up for election next year. In a statement today, Governor Tony Evils signaled his support, saying the lawsuit is one step closer to ensuring the voices of Wisconsinites are heard. This lawsuit will be going before the first Wisconsin Supreme Court with a liberal majority in 15 years, following the swearing-in or investiture of the new justice, Janet Protasiewicz, at the Capitol yesterday. And this timing is not a coincidence. Law Ford told the Cap Times in April that they plan to file this lawsuit after Protasiewicz officially joined the court. Protasiewicz has not been shy about her stance on redistricting. During her campaign, she said that she believed the maps were unfair and extremely gerrymandered. She identified it as an important issue in an interview with WORT in February. You know, some of the issues that people are extraordinarily concerned about have to do with gerrymandering and people's ability to actually have their vote count and have their voice being heard, just how important that is. And I tell people that my value is in a democracy, everybody's voice should be heard. Meanwhile, at the investiture yesterday, Protasiewicz emphasized the value of democracy and importance of fairness in the court. I look forward to serving alongside all of you, along with Chief Justice Ziegler and Justice Bradley, to uphold the Constitution of our state and deliver on the promise of justice for every Wisconsinite. Attorney General Josh Call shared his thoughts with WORT at yesterday's event. Well, this is uh, our democracy in action. We, what we witnessed was the peaceful transition of power, uh, as we have throughout our country's history, um, seeing the uh, will of the people uh, being converted into results is, is what's happening here. The, the voters showed up and selected uh, now Justice Protasiewicz, uh, and today she has joined the Supreme Court. And the impact of that will be felt for years to come as she's issuing decisions uh, on, on a critical issues for the state. Lawsuits and other issues that came up during the Supreme Court election are likely to appear. Lydia Wilkins is the chair of Green Lake County Democrats and attended the investiture. She told WORT yesterday that more lawsuits are on the way. Well, I am assuming there are some cases, lawsuits in the wings, such as lawsuits about women's reproductive rights and also the Republican-drawn uh, maps. So I'm assuming those will be coming to the forefront. 
ensuring access to abortion was perhaps the key issue in this spring's election and helped turn out the vote for protostatewits. A lawsuit to overturn Wisconsin's abortion ban is expected to make its way to the state Supreme Court after a Jane County judge ruled last month that it could proceed. Janet Protestatewitz replaces the former conservative Justice Patience Rogensack, who retired last week. The next battle for control of the court will come in two years, when conservative Justice Ann Walsh-Bradley reaches the end of her 10-year term. Reporting for WORT, I'm Abigail Levins. Willow Polish contributed audio to this report. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. After years of debate, the Madison Common Council voted last night to begin a police body-worn camera pilot program for the city of Madison. While proponents of the camera say that it will bring more transparency to policing, opponents say that there are too many unanswered questions about how they will be used. One of those questions is about the privacy concerns with the cameras, and more importantly, who will have access to that footage and how it will be used. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes to learn more about the pilot program and how that footage will be securely kept. Last night, the Madison Common Council approved the implementation of Madison's first police body-worn camera pilot program after years of debate. I'm joined now by Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes to learn more about that plan. Uh, Chief Barnes, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. And give me a few more details about that pilot program, as in when will it begin, how long will it run, how many officers will be getting these cameras, and then what happens once the pilot program is completed? Absolutely. So, you know, my original intent was to run the pilot earlier uh, in the year. Um, you know, it took us a little longer than expected to get the uh, policy completed. There were some, some loopholes there that we had to get some hurdles that we had to get over, um, and I can speak about that, but we were able to do that. We had to submit it to city legal. They had to give us feedback, and then once I brought it to council, council then asked, okay, well, now we want you to send it to two other committees, and so we had to go through those two committees. It passed both committees very well, and then it came back to council, and indeed, that still wasn't enough. Council wanted additional information that was quite frankly already going to be collected and you saw a literally four or maybe five hour conversation about that. Um, it would seem though as if if you asked me to send it to committee and committee approved it, it should have been uh, a 30 minute conversation. But I think some council members were looking for a different outcome and, and the outcome wasn't what they expected. So there was a lot of robust discussion about it. And so the pilot will run for 90 days. Um, I really, really would like the policy to run during the summer months uh, because, you know, officers are wearing coats and we have different styles of coats. And depending on what brand we have, it may be difficult. We don't want the cameras covered up, so we can't get information from it. So I may take some time to uh, really work uh, with the researcher that, we're, that we've been working with, uh, Dr. Broderick Turner, uh, who, who's actually over at Harvard right now to make sure that the study design is well. I want to do some community groups 
focus groups, maybe town hall, so that people know exactly what we can and what we can't do with the pilot so they can see our research questions. I included a research proposal uh, that's in Legistar so people can go in and they can see what we're looking at uh, collecting and then we'll present that to the community so that there's no unrealistic expectations. I explained to an alder last night that the purpose of science is to give you information so that you can make an informed decision. And in, in this particular case, there's no study that's going to say you have to have these or the sky will fall, or you don't have to have these because everything is perfect. We'll, we'll, we'll have a cost-benefit analysis. You'll know what it will cost to actually run this. You'll know how many personnel we will need to add in order to do this successfully. You'll have an idea of what public records requests may look like. You'll have an idea of how much time it takes to process a public records request. You'll have some idea of whether or not the officers who wore body cameras saw a different outcome in categories like use of force or arrest than others. Uh, you'll get an idea from the officers whether they liked the policy, whether it was easy to follow, do we have policy failures, things of that nature. So it's really um, a lot of data points that I think we can collect. But at the end of the day, we'll bring those back, we'll have a recommendation, and then we'll move forward. And tell me about the program's data retention policies, as in how long will the footage be kept? How will it be kept and kept secure? And what sort of privacy measures you will be taking? Yeah, so, you know, all of the, the companies that, that do this, you know, they're all CGIS compliant. So, you know, it's no really threat that your information is going to be gone or that someone's going to steal it. Uh, we certainly, I hope, will not use CDs. I've been through that before many, many years ago. Uh, but most of them are cloud-based, and so all the information will be will be kept in the cloud. The companies will give us access to those in the event that we need them. Obviously, with public records, if it's attached to a case or some type of investigation, uh, we'll have to keep that for the the length of the of the actual um, case, which I think the retention may be like 99 years or something like that in Wisconsin. Um, but whatever we do, we want to follow the law, and when it comes to privacy. It depends on who's asking for the video. If you are in the video and you're asking for it, uh, you have a, a greater expectation to receive that unredacted as someone who does not. And so we're going to follow the law. This is not that new to us because we do have dash cams and we, we do have body-worn cameras on our motorcycles and things of that nature. But we'll follow the law. We'll follow uh, what the law says about the release of public records if that happens. But there will be no, you know, sharing of, of information, sharing of, of photos or stills or anything like that unless it's connected to um, an active investigation. And tell me a little bit about how you went about crafting your data retention policy for this program. You know, there's a fine line here between protecting people's privacy and the public's interest in the footage. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's called a balancing test here in Wisconsin, and we have an amazing public records custodian. She sits on, on several state boards, and, and we, will, we will follow the letter of the law. I mean, it's no different than, you know, asking for a report and then there's redaction there. And so we're going to make sure that, number one, we follow the law. One of the biggest co areas of conflict was that the feasibility committee uh, had these, it was almost kind of like these, these, I don't know where they got these numbers from, like you're going to release this to this person and this to that person. And we have to say, hey, you know, did they consider that the law doesn't allow for that? 
uh, before you can release that that video to this or that person. And so we we have to go in and, and make some changes. And, and the policy is again in Legistar, and you will see that it, it definitely complies with with public records law. I don't I'm not an expert uh, in public records law here in Wisconsin. You know, I certainly depend on our records custodian for that. And if that's something that you're interested, we can send that back over to you uh, as a follow up story. Or uh, Julie Laundry would be an excellent guest for you for anyone who has an issue with it. But here's the thing. Body-worn cameras is not new. It's not even new to Wisconsin. And so, you know, some of the concerns that people had in our city were very well thought out, very well taken. But if you actually look at other cities, we haven't had any issues. I actually looked at did a search. I was trying to find ACLU lawsuits about body-worn cameras, and I actually couldn't find any. And certainly, if this technology, which is the fastest adapted technology in the history of policing, there are police departments that have uh, computers in their vehicles, and uh, excuse me, they have body-worn cameras, but don't have computers in their vehicles, because people recognize that this is best practice. This will keep everyone safe. We can use this to hold people accountable when they, when they don't uh, abide by the law or our policies or our procedures, and this is a tool that we think will help uh, minimize risk for our agency. And, and we're just a little bit behind at that. And I certainly understand all the privacy concerns, but I can probably tell you now, if you walk outside, if you go anywhere, you're probably on camera anyway. I've been talking with Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes about the body camera pilot program approved by the Madison Common Council last night. Chief Barnes, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was a great conversation. That was WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt talking with Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, now that we're past Lamas and uh, heading into the latter half of summer, we're starting to see some of the uh, meteorological characteristics that we tend to expect to see this time of year, including uh, heavy dews and more frequent ground fogs in the morning and uh, lighter winds through a greater depth of the air column and comparatively warm temperatures aloft. Those latter two factors uh, tend to be somewhat related, or at least they can be, and they're also a product of the fact that the northern hemisphere is currently becoming about as thermally homogenized as it's going to get during the warm season, while, of course, its temperature contrast and the differences in density that it produces that we typically look to to accelerate winds, at least in the uh, broad scale... Uh, In any case, though, I bring that up only because uh, forecasting relatively important things like thunderstorm development tends to become more difficult the weaker the larger scale forces become and the more dominant local scale factors become. And we're going to get a taste of that uh, this coming late week period and early weekend as we sit between the upper air ridge that's out over the southwestern U.S. with its heat and the upper trough that's now over the eastern Great Lakes in New England with its cooler air. Uh, That tableau of features is visible currently on the water vapor image of the continental U.S. We have linked on the WORT weather webpage if you want to have a look at it. And if you do, uh, you can see there that over the past few days, the upper ridge has slowly been enlarging eastward and northeastward over us. 
uh, warming us, of course, modestly down here at the surface of the Earth a little bit, and also sending the zone of stronger temperature contrast and stronger upper winds northward and eastward uh, out of the area as well. So while we'll have a fair bit of both moisture and heat, adding potential instability and upward-directed energy for thunderstorms on both the coming afternoons, uh, we'll not have any strong triggers in the upper air, at least, to initiate convection, though we will have a weak cold front approaching the area by later tomorrow. Uh, convergence doesn't look particularly strong with that particular feature, and uh, with an otherwise kind of warmish and somewhat dry profile aloft, I'm not expecting to see thunderstorms. Although some of the high-resolution convective-allowing computer models do retain enthusiasm for the idea, at least for scattered convection, in the late afternoon or evening tomorrow. Friday, it appears that the incoming surface high pressure, uh, shallow though it will be, uh, along with strengthening low pressure out on the western plains, will help to keep low and mid-level moisture focused out of the area, more out to our west. So again, despite decent energy being in place for thunderstorms on Friday, I'm expecting only very widely scattered, uh, maybe disorganized cells to pop up in the late afternoon, if anything. <coughs> Excuse me. As uh, that low to our west edges eastward then from about uh, north uh, Nebraska or South Dakota into Iowa on Saturday, our precipitation chances will begin to increase. Uh, but even the more aggressive of the longer range models are so far keeping thunderstorms west of us through most or all of the daylight hours on Saturday. Uh, and if the European model verifies, we may actually stay dry uh, into or through Sunday morning. In any case, precipitation looks likely by Sunday with uh, fairly organized low-pressure circulation crossing uh, either Wisconsin or northern Illinois in the uh, Sunday into Monday time frame. But back to tonight, uh, scattered cumulus should uh, continue to slowly dissipate and leave uh, mostly just passing high clouds from convection to our southwest to clutter up the skies through the overnight. Uh, temperatures will drop back to the mid to upper 60s on light south to southwesterly winds. Uh, given mostly clear skies, uh, valley fog may set up in the uh, Wisconsin River Valley and some other low spots, uh, also given the fact that uh, dew points will remain uh, fairly sticky up in the mid-60s. Uh, tomorrow, sky conditions are a little tough. Uh, like today, I'm expecting both uh, some passing high clouds and some regrowth of diurnal cumulus, especially as we get later in the day, when we may uh, see some of that uh, Cumulus tower up with the approach of the cold front late in the afternoon or in the early evening. Temperatures will reach the upper 80s, provided the cloud cover doesn't get too out of hand. Uh, southwesterly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour will veer west and northwest in the evening or early overnight period. And again, an isolated shower or thunderstorm is not impossible in the late afternoon, but any of that activity should uh, die out as we go in the overnight hours. Temperatures will drop back to the mid-60s with light winds veering north and northeast then by Friday morning. And Friday then should be a bit cooler with northeasterly winds coming up during the day to about 5 to 10 miles per hour and holding temperatures probably to the low 80s. Uh, daytime cumulus again seem likely Friday with uh, passing high and mid-level clouds uh, at times as well, uh, perhaps especially later in the day. Temperatures will drop to the lower mid-60s in the overnight on continued east-northeast winds, about 3 to 7 miles per hour. And Saturday will likely see additional cloud cover, uh, thickening especially later in the day as showers and thunderstorms begin to approach from the west anyway. Temperatures will reach, I think, 80 or so, possibly just the upper 70s if the uh, cloud cover stays a little thicker that day. Uh, easterly winds uh, will increase some, up to 5 to 10, maybe 12 miles per hour as the low-pressure uh, to our west in Iowa starts to deepen a little more. 
Uh, showers and thunderstorms become fairly likely either by evening or in the overnight period into Sunday, possibly putting down some uh, decent rains and spots uh, through the day Sunday. Temperatures will hold in the low to mid-60s in the overnight, and Sunday looks to be cool and rainy. It's uh, something we haven't really seen in a while. Temperatures will hold probably just in the low 70s that day. And as I mentioned, it may stay damp into Monday as well. Uh, currently down here at the station on Bedford Street, the temperature is 82 degrees. The dew point temperature is 64. Winds are out of the south at 9 miles per hour. Uh, streaks of cirrus up above 25,000 feet passing over the station currently, plus a fair amount of uh, cumulus left up at about 4,000 feet. And the barometer is steady at uh, 30.00 inches of mercury. We go now to August 1963, when the question of how much Black Lives Mattered in Madison took center stage, and a citizen uprising threatened urban renewal. Stu Levitan tells it like it was 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, August 1963 The Wisconsin State Journal and Capital Times disagree on almost every issue. The State Journal helped to kill the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Auditorium and Expo Center in 1961 and has been strongly pushing the city to build a causeway across Monona Bay. The Cap Times rails against the new roadway, and its editor-publisher, William T. Evu, was a friend and acolyte of Wright's. But they both agree that Madison is beset by systemic racism, which the city needs to address before a bad situation gets worse. And as the country prepares for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28th, in which about 40 Madisonians participate, both papers give civil rights a special focus— on the 1st, the State Journal starts an 11-part, month-long special report entitled The Negro in Madison. The first headline is an attention-grabber. Quote, We're getting a Negro ghetto. It explains that because there are no local, state, or federal fair housing laws, blacks displaced from the integrated, multi-ethnic Greenbush neighborhood by urban renewal are moving to the only other area they can live, South Madison which enables the white property owners there to move out and rent to the new arrivals. And as absentee owners, their concern for maintenance and upkeep drops sharply, compounding the already poor infrastructure. The Capital Times makes the same point in its August 8th story, Absentee Owners Letting Belled Street Ghetto Decay, City Negroes Caught in Squeeze. Under the August 6th headline, Racial Fears Block Sale of House, the State Journal details how neighborhood pressure in a white area forced a willing seller to refuse to sell to a qualified black family. And it quotes a local realtor that half their listings cannot be shown to blacks at the seller's direction. A few days later, the Cap Times reports that Madison Board of Realtors President Earl Espeseth has no comment on reports that deeds in the Westside Nakoma neighborhood contain racially restrictive covenants. On the 15th, the State Journal summarizes the ambiguous nature of discrimination which the dozen or so black pupils face in the 10,000 student strong city school system under the headline, Bias in Schools? No and Yes. 
Around that time, the school board reveals it wants to build a junior high school in South Madison, probably at the corner of Magnolia Lane and Cypress Way. But there's little ambiguity in the State Journal's final report on August 25th, under the headline, Clergy Call Race, Moral Problem. The Cap Times surveys the employment situation on the 7th, under the headline, Madison Negroes Make Minor Dents in Local Job Bias. Few firms change policy. It reports that CUNA now has six black employees, including a journeyman printer, administrative assistant, and assistant director of accounting, and that three of the city's four department stores employ blacks, including one store, presumably Manchester's, with six black women operating the elevators. There are no black clerks in the city supermarkets. Two days later, the Cap Times gets personal, under the headline, Colston Aiming NAACP Drive at Moneyed Society, Portrait of a Rights Leader. It reports that Marshall Colston, president of the Madison branch of the Venerable Civil Rights Organization, is a mild-mannered militant who, quote, has been honing the local NAACP chapter into a fine-cutting tool to carry Negro protests to the unsullied and money heights of Madison society. Among the initiatives of the 36-year-old state welfare supervisor, a strong local ordinance banning bias in employment and housing. And the activist has little patience for his organization's more cautious members, especially middle-aged whites who joined the group as a liberal gesture while it was devoted to, quote, aimless, meandering policies. Neither paper addresses the relationship between blacks and the Madison Police Department, Perhaps they should have, as news breaks that a retired Madison policeman, from the days when many members of the force belonged to the Ku Klux Klan, is trying to form a local anti-integration vigilante committee, which he describes as, quote, like the Ku Klux Klan, but without hoods. Earl Bonner, 69, who retired on disability in 1940, is so upset by civil rights marches near his California home that he started calling around seeking support here for his fight, so far without evident success. And there are portents of problems facing the city's urban renewal program as it prepares for a project in an area several socioeconomic steps above the Triangle's Greenbush neighborhood. In 1960, the university adopted the plan for the Southeast Dormitory Expansion Area, 16 acres of land between the railroad tracks and University Avenue. It budgeted $18 million to buy the 388 properties there and expects to spend $100 million in construction over the next decade there and in the surrounding area. The budget is based on a $9 million federal grant for land costs. But to get the grant, the university needs to prepare an impact statement on what its development will do to the 496 acres outside the expansion area, from Wisconsin Avenue to Spooner Street. The so-called UW General Neighborhood Renewal Plan is to be a joint effort of the Madison Redevelopment Authority and campus planners. And it, too, requires federal funding, which the city formally asked for this February. Fearing that this application to fund a study is the first step to the kind of urban renewal that destroyed parts of the Greenbush neighborhood, 200 property owners form a self-proclaimed Citizens Watchdog Committee to fight the study and those who support it. Their misleading campaign claims are successful, electing four anti-renewal aldermen in April. 
including railroad switchman Leo Cooper, who ousts MRA member Gordon Reese to represent ground zero for urban renewal, the Ninth Ward. A few months after the election, a new group forms, the Madison Home Owners Association. On August 7th, a group of 167 area property owners get together and declare their intent to kill the local urban renewal program by referendum. The MHOA votes to start a petition drive for a referendum to ban any future renewal unless the project is endorsed by majority vote within the affected wards. Calling on recent history to drum up support, the MHOA throws a picnic at Brittingham Park on the 24th, with special guests, a hundred former residents displaced by the Triangle and Brittingham Urban Renewal Projects. The immigrants and the association jointly lynch an effigy of the Redevelopment Authority. Among those holding the rope, Alderman Cooper, now a member of the MRA. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Bennett Davishoff. Your reporters were Abigail Levins and Willow Polish. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Sholly Pittman's the news director at WORT. And Nate Weggie helped produce this newscast, his very last for Wednesday. Nate, we're going to miss you down here. We wish you all the best in your future endeavors. And, of course, we'll still be listening to your fishing reports on Thursday when you'll be a volunteer, I guess. Very best wishes, though. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Another echo. We're going to miss you, Nate. Thank you so much. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.